We've been following the story of Nehemiah, and central to the story, central to the narrative, is this idea of calling, that we have all been called by God to do something, to be someone for someone else. And I can't tell you how encouraging it is, how encouraging it has been for me to hear how many of you guys are actually struggling with this and grappling with this as it applies to your life. And some of you have asked questions about how one might go discerning such a call. And I just wanted to throw out for you two questions that you can ask yourself in helping discerning them, discovering these calls in your life. The first question is to ask yourself, is there something in your life where you experience a holy discontent? Is there something in your life where you experience a holy discontent? Not just personal discontent but a holy discontent, and the difference might be a personal discontent is mainly about a frustration of your own personal goals and loss of control in your own life. But a holy discontent is when you get a glimpse of brokenness and and, a need in the world, perhaps even from from God's perspective, from God's eyes, and you sense that you ought to do something about that. And the second question that you can ask yourself is, how have you been blessed? How have you been blessed? And is there someone who can use your help with your blessings? Is there someone who, can, who you can help with your time, with your resources, with your connections, your, t- your talents? Because the scripture is clear and it reminds us that the, one of the primary reasons why God blesses his people, why God blesses us, is so that we might bless others. You just don't see this in the Bible where God blesses someone so that they can accumulate more wealth than the next guy or so that they can live in greater comfort for themselves. There's this tacit understanding that our blessings are best experienced when they are used in service of God to bless others. Those two questions for me, where am I I experiencing holy discontent and how have I been blessed, I think can help us discern our callings. Nehemiah experiences his holy discontent when he hears about the broken walls of Jerusalem and the broken spirit of the people of God. And he also thinks about how he's been blessed with a position of influence, with the necessary connection to the king, that he rises to the challenge of God's calling in his life. And so we saw last week how he inspired the broken people of God to stand shouting together, let us rise and build. Let us rise and do the work of God. And what is really cool for me to to do sometimes, what is really cool to do sometimes is to begin to imagine just what if. What if we as a church, all of us really began to listen and obey and serve God's call, God's purposes in our circles of influence, amongst our friends, in our neighborhoods. What is really cool to do sometimes is to imagine what is possible when we, his people, would humble ourselves and heed his call. 
How many lives will be touched? How many hearts might be comforted? Nehemiah's story can be our inspiration. And right now, on so many, uh, on so many levels, the story, though, takes a turn, especially in chapter 4. Because where, this is where the story really begins to get dicey. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how our tendency is to think that once we choose the right path, the path of pursuing God's call, path that honors God, we have this tendency to think that now that we're doing something that is giving of ourselves and worthy of God's calling in our lives, it should be easy. It should be downhill from here. We think, man, I've made the hard decision. I've made the hard sacrifices. And we think the hard part is behind us, but that's not what happens. Obstacles appear. Opposition lines up. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from the heap of rubble burned as they are? And then Tobiah the Ammonite just piles on, right? He says this, he chimes in with this line. He says, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down the walls of stone. Think about that comment a little bit. Think about how annoying that comment is. If I were Nehemiah, I might be both confused and offended. What did I ever do to you guys? What does it matter to you that I am doing this? We're not doing this at your expense. We're not doing this with your people, with your resources. What have I ever done to you that you would make fun of? I mean, why are you making fun of our our walls? I don't know if you've ever done a building project or anything, and, and you're like in the middle of it, and somebody comes in halfway, and they decide to be critical about it. There's that famous backyard project story that I always tell in situations like this because that backyard story, some of you guys remember, it was about already about 13 years ago. When the first home moved in, some of the people who are not here today, but who are named Young and Jean, suggested that I actually take on a backyard project. Saw my little backyard and said, you know what would be great if you put pavers down, put down stone. You could do this probably in a weekend, maybe two at most. Took me about nine months, nine months of hard labor, mostly on the back of my old dad. You guys know this part. But I also remember having, like, at that time, couples over. And, and I, I remember this because it, it was so annoying that Young would look at the backyard half finished and he would say, Oh, that's not what I meant. And it's just like, you just go, what? what did I do to you? Anybody who makes a comment in the midst of you doing something, it's doubly annoying. So this guy, Tobiah, comes in and says, oh, if a fox climbed on your walls, it would fall crashing down. And he thinks he's funny, right? Seven times, seven times in Nehemiah, there's this formula where the work advances and something good happens. And then comes the phrase, 
when they heard, and, and they, the enemies, when Sambalat heard, when Sambalat and Tobiah heard, when our enemies heard, it says seven times, some member of the opposition hears, and there is more trouble. Every single advance in Nehemiah's mission is met by opposition. I don't know if you have ever felt like this, but I could totally relate to this, right? Because in my life, I feel like I have experienced this. I think you guys know, you guys have experienced this in your life as well. It's rarely the situation where you take steps forward and steps forward and you gain momentum and you gain momentum and you start going and going and going. What generally happens is you take steps forward and you you take steps forward and you feel like you're just about to gain momentum and then something pushes you back. And you're going, well, I mean, that's a lot of work to take that one step. Because it's actually like five steps. Three forward and two back. Well, that's what these guys do. You have to wonder, do these guys have a day job? Because they're like that really annoying coworker, for whatever reason, wants to see you fail. You guys I don't have, I'm not my coworkers. People delight in other people's failures. And if we're being honest, you could probably say, yeah, that's probably me too as well at times. But these guys are doing more than just being passive about this. They're actively plotting against Nehemiah. Every time he makes a little headway, there is more trouble. And when Sambalat and Tobiah take a break, it is the Jews themselves, the people that Nehemiah is working with themselves, they bring to him problems. They say, they say in verse 10, our strength is running out. Everybody's tired. The laborers are tired. There's so much rubble to clear up. And we just can't do this anymore. We're tired. We're worn down by the threats and the opposition as well. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but... There's a part of me that thinks, that really believes this, because I'm always caught by surprise when it's the other way. So I know I believe this. I believe life should be easy. If I try to do a good thing, I ought to get credit for it, and life ought to be easy. But it's not. The downhill coast doesn't come. Or if it comes, it seems to come for only a short time. It's kind of like... I mean, how can it be that it's so much uphill? doesn't it have to go downhill sometimes. Still, there's something in us that expects that life should be easy. Every time Nehemiah is met by opposition, he faces another problem. And sometimes after a tough day, we will get together with one another, and we're upset at something that someone has said or has done, and we will use this, da- this line, which is, that's not what I signed up for. Right? Sometimes after a tough day. You volunteer to do ministry at church. You, you volunteer to help out. But somehow the person that had got you involved in that ministry now leaves. And now you're in charge. And there's nobody else but you. And Guilt is making you stay. Your sense of commitment and responsibility is making you stay. But you're going, I didn't sign up for this. 
or you try to do good work, um, you try to help out in some way, you try to help a fundraising, you offer to help for a good cause, but not only does, not only do people not help you in doing this and think it's your responsibility, they accuse you of bad motives. Or you share something vulnerable in a small group as a leader and you want to set the tone and you want to kind of make it safe for everyone only to have someone use that against you. That's not what I signed up for. That's not what I signed up for. Pastors, when we get together with other pastors, we're famous for saying that. Because <laughs> we feel like, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up to, to pray for people. I signed up to, to, to preach and study the Word of God and, and teach the people the Word of God. I signed up to do actual missions. And what we're trying to say is, we have answered God's call. And we're willing to serve and rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are grieving and all that. But there's this other stuff. There's this, all this stuff that comes with it, it seems like. This obstacle, this opposition, all these difficulties that rise up. And you feel like that's not part of the deal that we sign up for. Anybody ever feel like that? People question our motivation. People question our ability people question the quality of your leadership people question the quality of your service or your character and all the while completely dismissing our sacrifice and our commitment to make this happen that's not what i signed up for why do we have to deal with the sambalats and the tobias in our lives why all the difficulty why this continued battle I had one woman tell me like this. She said she was struggling with burnout. She said, it feels like God is not holding up to his end of the deal. It feels like God is not holding up to his end of the deal. The answer, I think, actually comes when you observe Nehemiah's story one step back and ask the question, how does he succeed where so many others have failed. And what I mean by this is some commentators, some very keen commentators make this observation. That when you read Nehemiah's story and the stories of the opposition that arise against him, the story thread of the antagonists, it's an essential part of the story of Nehemiah. It doesn't distract from the work. And in fact, it has a way of focusing Nehemiah's work. The story of the opposition is essential to the development of Nehemiah's story. In other words, Nehemiah doesn't succeed in spite of the opposition. He succeeds, in one sense, because of the opposition. So it's like this. Nehemiah gets the people working uh, they do good, and the enemies react, and their focus becomes sharper. And Nehemiah, once again, gets the people working, and they do good. They make progress, and the enemies react, 
and their focus becomes sharper. Nehemiah gets the people working. They make progress. They move forward, and the enemies react, and their focus once again becomes sharper. Again and again they do this. And at each turn, it has the effect of dealing problems, dealing with problems that would have kept the people from becoming a community. They deal with the community's defenses. They deal with justice issues. They deal with worship issues. So until that they get to a point where they have built the wall, but they have more than built the wall. Because let me, let me remind you, this is not a book about how people built a wall. This is a story about how people learned to trust God once again with their lives, to rediscover their calling as the covenant people of God. That's what this story is about. So it turns out that the difficulties and the obstacles and the opposition, these things can actually be a desirable thing for human flourishing. It's true in general, and it's true specifically for us in the church. Because look, the main reason why you and I do not either respond to a call that God makes in our lives The main reason why you and I do not respond to a call is not because of direct disobedience where we say to God, God has made a call, and you stand up to God and you say, no, I will not do what you call me to do. We just don't do that. When was the last time you heard anybody say that? Never. The main reason why you and I might not finish the task that God gives us It's not because of difficulties, folks, although we like to think so. The main reason why we fail to complete things that are important is because we lose our focus. The main reason is because the task slowly fades away from our list of priorities, slowly moves down on the things that are important and urgent in our lives business until you no longer notice that you're once again living with broken walls again. We are too distracted by things, too busy with things. But those distractions sometimes, these difficulties then, however, can serve as a cover these distractions and the busyness that, that keeps us from answering yes or uh, are keeping true to our call has a way of covering up for our disobedience. I was listening to a woman give a talk this week, and she said it like this. She said, I was afraid of how God might be calling me. I was afraid of how God was calling me, so I kept really busy. Can you guys relate to that? Anyone else think this might be you? How do you get people to focus then? How do you get people to focus? How do you get people to stay on target? How do you get people to listen to the call? One way that God uses, and you can see this at work in Nehemiah's story, is precisely through the difficulties and the opposition. 
the enemies and the obstacles. Let me come at this another way of how difficulties have a way of making us sometimes better. That difficulties are not things that we ought to be resenting, but sometimes be thankful for, as the Bible tells us to do. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, how many of you guys are Malcolm Gladwell fans? He's a writer. He's a wonderful writer and a recovering Christian. I think that's a good way of talking about him. He's, he's uh, rediscovering his, his Christianness, and you could actually see this in this book, David, uh, this new book that he um, just published entitled David and Goliath. And his point of the book is that what many people think as disadvantages and weaknesses in life are, in fact, not disadvantages. And if you understand it rightly, it can be a source of great strength. That's, his, that's the gist of the uh, book. And one story that he tells is a story of David Boyce, who is um, considered one of the top trial lawyers in the country. He has been part of it seems like pretty much every single famous trial that, that actually gets a case that gets, goes to a court, that goes to a trial, he has been part of it. And for the past uh, 20, 30 years, he's been part of the Microsoft Monopoly trial. Napster, he represented Napster. He represented NFL and, and, he, and, and Google. Um, and he argued many, many cases before the Supreme Court. But David Boyce suffers from a severe case of dyslexia. I mean, a seriously a severe case of dyslexia where even now, they say, he says he has a hard time reading just one book in a year. Now think about that for an attorney. And, and, and the reams of documents that they have to go through for a single case or to prepare for a single witness. It's incredible if you think about this. Um, it is so severe, he says, he wouldn't wish it on his worst enemy. But when he was asked, how are you successful in spite of your dyslexia? His response was, I wasn't successful in spite of my dyslexia. I was successful precisely because of it. And he explains that because he could not depend on his ability to read, from a very early age, He developed his listening skills, and he honed his memory. So even as a child, his mother would read books to him, and he could not read along because it was so hard, it would give him headaches. So he would memorize the stories. He would just listen extra carefully. He wound up going to law school. He attended University of Redlands after barely making it out of high school. You think a very famous lawyer coming out of Universal Redlands, I'm not knocking it, but it's, it's not at the highest tier. And he never graduated from there because back then, he could, you could go to law school without having graduated from college. That was the appeal of going to a law school for him. That's why he went there, he says. He wound up graduating top of the class from Yale because he had trained himself So what he would do in lectures was not take notes because it would be useless for him, but to listen carefully and to commit things to memory while his classmates busily took notes. And if you remember back then, when he was going through law school, people were actually literally writing things out versus doing this, okay? So the chances of you missing stuff, and some of you may have memories of this, you know, when you're going through college, 
in the olden days before the computers, you know, actually have to handwrite notes and you just can't go at the speed of the lecturer. So while classmates, while they were missing certain important points that the professor might make, he was paying attention, he was committing them to memory. And then he used those skills in the court as a trial lawyer. And he's famous for remembering seemingly obscure details that a witness might say, and there's just, you know, a witness says so many different things, and he learned to listen carefully, so he would know when the, the witness is actually thinking a little bit too hard, and he could actually tell those moments, because he learned to do this from the earliest of age. And he would use these skills to become successful in the court of law. This is what Nehemiah's opposition does for his mission. It makes the opposition, makes Nehemiah and the people of God rely not on the usual things that people might look for in a construction project. It makes them rely on God. What does Nehemiah do every time the opposition comes? He prays. Verse 3 is opposition. Verse 4 and 5 is Nehemiah's prayer. He just goes right into it. The content of the prayer in verses 4 and 5 is very vindictive, folks. And it's very mean. It says, may they be punished, essentially. The point, though, is that he prays. And when they plot against him, again, in verse 8, it says in verse 9 that he prayed. This is Nehemiah's pattern. The opposition's pattern is to attack whenever the good things happen. Nehemiah's pattern is whenever the opposition occurred, he would pray. And you saw this in chapter 1 and chapter 2 when, ta- when he had more time, but now when the opposition is at hand, he prays still. The pattern is there. Would, you, would he remember? You have to ask this question. Would he remember to pray if there was no difficulty? Maybe Nehemiah would but I know I usually don't. At least not with the same sense of need or with the same sense of urgency. This is the human heart, and we need to fess up to that as well. That at times, our greatest aware of our spiritual need, of our life's need for God, is in fact precisely in those moments where the opposition and the obstacles and the difficulties seem the greatest. Just as much as David Boyce's dyslexia led him to develop his memory and his listening skills, the difficulties that we encounter in life can lead to our dependence on God by developing our prayer life and our listening skills. How does God get us to listen and stay focused on our calling? I can tell you one thing he does not do, and that is to remove all opposition all difficulties from your path. That means when opposition and difficulty comes in response to you responding to God's call, you ought not look at the difficulty with resentment or as a sign that God has abandoned you, but rather as a reminder to keep God in the center, as a reminder to pray that this work that God has called you to do however seemingly small, cannot be accomplished without God being 
in the center of it all. Because this calling, folks, this thing that we're doing, trying to respond to God's call, it's not about you. It's not about me or it's not about our abilities and what we can do and what we can't. It's not about the easy path, but it is about the path of righteousness. It is the path of God that helps us to understand that all this, this entire life, would be meaningless. All of our flailing about, all of our attempts to make a difference in this world would be meaningless if we did not remember why, if we did not remember our motivation, if we did not remember to put God at the center of all of these things. You see, it's so easy. Difficulties help keep our uh, keep help to check our pride. Keeps us humble. Because it's so easy, whenever you find success, any sort of success in life, to let the pride take over. It's so easy, no matter how good the thing that you're doing is, for you to think, oh, it's me. And start feeling, it's what I can do. And it's about me at the center Building projects especially have a way of getting in the way of humility. Um, This was not the first building project in the Bible, right? If you think back in Genesis, you hear the story of the Tower of Babel. And that's not a good story. People have a building project, they get together, and after they build this tower, they feel so good about themselves, and it's mainly about human pride. You think about the story... Uh, in 2 Samuel, when David says, I want to build a temple for God, and God responds to that, he says, no, no. I need a home. I need a temple because you tell me that I need it. You're not going to be the one to do it. You're not going to be the one to do it. Why? Because human beings have this great tendency to associate a lot of pride with building projects, right? I mean, even in our times, whenever people want to feel good about themselves, they always go on building projects. You look at the tallest building in the world in Dubai, in Taiwan, in Shanghai, and New York, and you can see this dynamic at work. Churches, of course, are not exempt from this. I had lunch with a good friend, this week, and we haven't seen each other in about 10 years, and we're talking about our churches, and, and he started talking about one of the concerns for his church, and he said, well, our church just bought a building, that we own our own building, and the way he said it, and I'm not saying building projects in themselves are bad, clearly Nehemiah is doing a building project, but there's a way to do it in a way that takes the focus away versus taking the focus and putting the focus in the right place, and my friend said, a church bought a building, and now we have our own facility, and he did not say that in a good way, as a, as a good thing. And he was talking about how entire meetings, he spent an entire meeting in the afternoon talking about facilities, who's going to clean what, and what to renovate next, and how we're going to budget our funds so that we can afford to pay the taxes for this. And so, so the entire meeting, he says, was about the building and how to maintain it, how to get more of it and make it look better. 
It's not that this is a bad thing, but sometimes we can replace the discussions of ministry and mission with discussions about buildings and facilities. You know, it is so much easier to talk about buildings, right? Because with buildings, you can feel good about, you can see tangibly what you're doing versus talking about people's lives being transformed. You feel like you're building something. But building projects have a way of making feel, people feel good about, good about themselves. But at the root, that was not Nehemiah's calling nor his project. Nehemiah's calling was to lead the people, not to feel better about themselves nor build up their pride, but to grow their faith and trust in God to recover their sense as the covenant people of God. The presence of the opposition made it clear that without God on their side, these walls would never get built. Do not fear, says in verse 14. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Why? Because Nehemiah's got it all under all in the control. He says, no. Nehemiah tells them the only reason why we would never have a reason to be afraid, which is verse 14. He says, remember the Lord who is awesome and great. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Remember our God who is awesome and great. And because of that, because God is great, now fight for this, Nehemiah says. Now fight for your sons, your daughters, your wives, your your children, and, and, and everything that you have because our God is in this. You get the logic of Nehemiah? You get the reason why he's so confident that there is a reason to fight for this? Because God is at the center of this. So when you tire, when your critics line up against you, remember this story of Nehemiah. Don't give up. Don't back down. Remember God. Folks, this is not me saying that the challenges that we face in life and the challenges that we face as we try to pursue God's call in our lives, that these things are always good things. Sometimes they're even awful things. But they don't have to take us down. And sometimes they can have the effect of making us even more useful for the kingdom of God. If we look at it the right way, they can be our source of great growth. Great usefulness for the kingdom of God. This is Christ's promise. That when we take up the cross and follow him, we can take comfort, not in our own power, not in our own abilities or even faith to make things happen, not in our own ability to to carry the cross, but rather in the loving promises of the one who leads us. This is Christ's promise. I was reading about a friend of a friend, and this will be the last story that I want to share with you guys, who is a graphic designer by uh, training. And uh, somehow he found out about how so many children in developing countries suffer from what is called severe acute malnutrition, SAMS, which causes all sorts of profound developmental issues. They're not dying of starvation, but the, the, the things that they're given to eat is so off balance. They, 
they're giving uh, too many carbs, not enough protein, those kind of things. And so they suffer severe um, developmental issues. And it just tugged at his heart. It just became his holy discontent. And um, I found out about this because this friend of a friend appeared on a, on a little news, uh, as a news item, because they're doing this. He organized this thing with Orange County chefs um, to create funds for this project to help with the severe acute malnutrition um, where the chefs, Orange County chefs around town would come up with their variation, their version of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And each one of these restaurants, each one of these chefs would donate a portion of the proceeds to the cause. But what was interesting is how he even got there, which is, what does a designer know about hunger issues? Right? He didn't feel like he was being called to be a missionary or a development worker. What can he do? All sorts of obstacles. But he knew he wanted to do more than just make a donation somewhere. He wanted to use his talents for creative thinking. He knew he had that. And he found a lot of um, obstacles as he tried to pursue this. Even criticism. A lot of people thinking that he was wasting his time. A lot of people thinking that his motives weren't even all there. But he perseveres. And he did it, it, it he, he moved, he went on and on and on to pursue what is something that he can do with his life. And he found a company and he re- realized, he found out that there's in fact a solution to Sam's. A very simple solution that there, there are these packets of essentially fortified peanut butter paste that if you give them to the kids for a, a period of a, about a month, I think, these kids with malnutrition issues, they're in, that it fortifies them and it, and it helps them with their developmental issues so quickly and so po- powerfully that they ne- after a month, um, they never have to go back on to this peanut butter paste diet again. That's it. As simple as that. And he did this because the reason why he persevered was because he went through a lot of difficulties in his life. He went through difficulties with his own personal issues. He went through difficulties with having a child um, with ADHD issues. So he didn't give up in trying to come up up with a solution because he had already experienced ways in which difficulties have arisen in his life. And because he had learned perseverance from those situations, he was able to persevere in this situation. And I was thinking, this is a guy who just simply answered his calling. This is a guy who didn't give up when the naysayers lined up. This is a guy who stayed on target and remembered the big picture. This is a guy who didn't give up 
because he remembered the Lord, who is great and awesome. How have you been blessed in your life? And how might somebody benefit from the blessings that you have received? How have we been blessed as a church? What are the hard-learned lessons that we have gained from our church experience? And how can our world be blessed because we are letting those blessings flow onto others? Let's pray. God, we thank you for reminding us once again that you are a God who is faithful, to be trusted. May, our, may we discover this before too much time is wasted. May we discover just how incredible it is to serve your purposes in our lives. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.